This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, October 24th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Economist Emily Oster argues that there is no single optimal set of child-rearing decisions. In her new book, Crib Sheet, she applies economic thinking to help parents evaluate the available choices for themselves. She shows that many widely held views and official government recommendations for parents are not backed up by evidence. She spoke at the Cato Institute in September. So I want you to, to picture this. Uh, you have a three-week-old. It's three o'clock in the morning. Uh, you're sitting in bed and your baby has fallen asleep eating. You know, they're, they're there. And, and you kind of know if you just sort of edge down a little bit and kind of put them next to you, they'll stay asleep and then they'll sleep and you'll sleep and everybody will feel much better in, in the morning. Uh, but of course, you're, you're conflicted. There's this bassinet next to you. You're fairly sure that you're supposed to put them in, in the bassinet. Uh, but you know, if you do that, there is a very good chance that you, uh, that they will, that they will wake up. So what do you do? Um, well, your partner, this is entirely their fault. It was their idea, and you'll discuss it with them later. They're snoring uh, next to you, so they're not available for discussion. Uh, and so maybe you take out your, your phone, uh, and you get on Facebook, and you say, hey, does anybody have any thoughts on, on co-sleeping? People have thoughts, many thoughts, uh, and you get a lot of conflicting views. On the one hand, you have the people who are like, absolutely, not only is it fine to do that, you should do that, because that is the way people have been sleeping for millions of years, and if you don't do that, your baby will probably not be attached to you, and they may never love you. Also, they might not love anyone else. Then there are the other people who are like, if you do this, your baby will die for sure. Okay, that also... Okay, so those both seem very, uh, very extreme. Question is, you know, within those conflicting views, uh, how are you going to make a, a decision? And so a lot of people ask me, like, when I think about parenting, I don't necessarily start about thinking about economics. Uh, you know, why is economics the right starting point for, for a parenting book? But I think this kind of conflict is kind of precisely the reason, uh, the reason why. Because economics is really a science about decision-making and about making decisions uh, based on data, as opposed to some other ways you could make decisions like just at random or on a whim or what last person you talked to, uh, talked to told you. Um, so when you think about this kind of decision, you know, should you co-sleep or, or not, uh, how should you make the decision? And I'm really going to argue in the book that you should think about the data, you should confront the data, you should confront the actual risks, and you should think about them in the context of other risks that you may be taking, that these risks are not, uh, they're not unique, and they are not there is not an extreme, neither of these extreme views that are being espoused in these Facebook groups, neither of them is, is right or is, the, is exactly right, and that, uh, that two different people, as Chelsea said, sort of two different people are going to look at the same data and maybe not come to the same conclusions. And I think once you take that kind of confronting approach and really think about the data, you can make the decision that works for your, for your family. And I think when you do this, this is sort of the key insight, is that that isn't going to be the same decision that is going to work for other, uh, for other people. And I think that's really where the subtitle of the book, More Relaxed Parenting, uh, comes in, that part of what is, seems so stressful about modern parenting, I think for many of us, is the feeling like somehow we are doing it wrong because we are doing it differently from other people. And the constant second guessing that comes with that, uh, with, with that is, is itself anxiety provoking. And I think recognizing that, you know, I've made the choice that works, that works for me. It won't be the same choice as, as everyone else, that that in and of itself can be a relaxing, uh, can be, can be a relaxing thing. 
So I don't want to talk for too long today because I want to leave a bunch of time uh, for, for Julie and then for, and then for questions. Um, but I wanted to give you a bit of a sense of kind of the work that I try to do in the book around getting through some of the data and helping people think about what data is, is good and what data is, uh, is, is less good. Um, so I want to talk just through, through one example, um, which is a, a single, uh, which is the, the topic of breastfeeding, and in particular the question of breast milk, is it magic? Uh, so certainly, uh, if, you, uh, if you have been parenting in the modern era, you will not be surprised to hear the claim breast milk is, uh, is magic. The pressure to breastfeed starts very early. It happens a lot. You get it before you have a baby. It happens in the hospital. Uh, afterwards, you know, if you breastfeed in public, some people will tell you, you know, put that away. But then other people will stop you and they'll say, oh, it's so great that you're doing this for your baby. Like, that's so, so great. Good job. The best. It's the best start. So good. Uh, so good. And so, of course, this is like the, the pressure that people get for this, I think, is made much more salient by the fact that it can be very hard. Uh, so, you know, breastfeeding is not, so for some people, it's, it's great. You just pop it on the baby. Is, that's great. Uh, but for some of us, this is a really challenging thing. The baby doesn't latch. They don't like to breastfeed. They want to do something else. It hurts. Your nipples are bleeding. You know, this isn't like have a cookie. This is hard. Uh, and so you're trying to do this very hard thing and people are telling you, you know, you have to keep doing it because that's the most important thing for your, uh, for your, for your baby. And I think it can be very frustrating and, and, and defeating uh, for, for many women. So just to be a little bit more concrete about like what are people being told, um, I pulled this list of benefits of breastfeeding from some different websites. Um, and it was too long for just single list. So we get a categorical, uh, categorical list. So some short-term benefits for the baby in terms of, uh, of, of health in a wide range of ways, some long-term benefits for the baby in terms of, for the kid in terms of health, less diabetes, less arthritis, less cancer, meningitis, pneumonia, urinary tract infections, Crohn's disease, obesity, allergies. Of course, they will be smarter, higher IQ, but don't forget about yourself. There's a lot of benefits for you, free birth control. You'll be very thin. Your baby will love you more. You're going to be very rich. Uh, no stress, <laughs> sleeping all the time, better friendships. That's very important to a lot of us. Um, and so on and so on. And then in the final column, of course, we have the, uh, the methane production um, from cows. Cows produce methane. Um, so really, there are many reasons to, to breastfeed. Uh, and I don't have time to go through all of these in this talk, but I just want to pull out one and talk a little bit about how we would think about evidence for the claim that breastfeeding raises, uh, raises your, kid's, uh, your kid's IQ. So this actually comes up, this claim comes up all the time, the idea that breast milk uh, will make your kid uh, s smarter. And to, to get a sense of kind of why you might think that, let's just like start with a particular uh, e example. So, um, so this is a study of like 350 Scandinavian kids from the 19 studies, the data is from the 1980s. Um, what they do in this study is they compare the IQ scores for these kids at the age of five, comparing between kids who are breastfed uh, and kids who are, uh, and kids who are not. Uh, and in because it's Scandinavia, everybody is breastfed, so the comparison is kids who are breastfed for more than six months versus less than three months. Uh, and what they find is that the kids who are breastfed longer have higher IQ scores, actually quite a lot higher. It's about five, five IQ points, um, or sorry, eight IQ points, uh, which is, like, that is a lot of, that's a, a lot of points. Um, and this is actually a pretty standard kind of result. So there's many, many data sets from many different places where if you look at them, you can see that uh, kids who are breastfed have higher IQs than kids who are, than kids who are not. 
But if you dig a little bit more into this study or kind of any of the studies on this, uh, what you will see is that, is that the moms who breastfeed are also different um, from those who, uh, those who don't. They tend to be more educated. They tend to be richer. They tend to be sort of positively selected in other ways. Um, it's kind of, there's a sort of interesting side question about like why are there these gradients with, uh, with education? Um, so actually those emerge in the, set, at least in the U.S. in the 1970s. So, so uh, breastfeeding reached its kind of lowest point in the early 70s, and then it, it goes up from the early 70s to the, to the present. And those increases are much larger among uh, more educated uh, women, um, which is something I think we don't have a great understanding about. But the result is that in the sort of current uh, in the current period, this selection is very much in favor of, of kind of women with higher socioeconomic status breastfeeding more. So to go back to this study, so, uh, so the researchers actually in this example, the Scandinavian data, they actually see some features of the mom. That's how they know they're different. So they see their education. They see some things about their, about their income. Uh, and they can, they can do what we call adjust for them. So they can run their, their regressions, run their analyses, controlling for differences in, in education or income to the extent that they, that they see them. Uh, and what they find is that when they put in those controls, when they kind of try to hold constant education or income, their effects are smaller, but they're still there. So they find these sort of much smaller, uh, much smaller differences in, in IQ, uh, but still what we call statistically, statistically significant. Um, so you might say, okay, great. Well, that sounds like we're, uh, like we're done. Um, so I con you control for things. That seems, that seems good. You adjust for these differences. So probably these effects are, are real. But I think the worry, uh, and this is, comes up all the time, is that those controls may be incomplete, right? So I see like whether the mom went to high school or not, but I don't see everything about her uh, background, everything about her education, everything about other features of her. And if those other features are also related to their kid's IQ and to, and to breastfeeding, we may not be like done adjusting for these differences. So we want to ask the question often, you know, if I control a little bit, if I adjust for some differences, the effect gets smaller, how much more, how much smaller would it get if I could adjust for everything? Um, so to see this, we can actually look at another, another study. So I want to put up a little bit of, of data. So this study uses a much larger sample. It has about 5,500 kids run in the U.S. Um, and the, the data set this is, this is drawn from has the same features as this Scandinavian data. So I see kids. I see some measure of their test scores. I see whether they're breastfed or not. But I also see two other things. One is I see an IQ test for mom. So now I can see not only the mom's education and, and her income and whether she's married, but I can also actually see her measured IQ. I can also see multiple kids in the same household. So I see like some moms who have two or three, uh, who are three kids. And in some cases, one of those kids was breastfed and one of those kids was, was not. Uh, so we can do a, a larger range of analyses in these data. So we can start with, uh, with what I'd refer to as the naive comparison. So just comparing kids who are breastfed to kids who are not and looking at differences in their IQ scores. Uh, and in this data set, the difference in IQ score is about 4.6 points on this particular test. So that's actually very big. Uh, that's a very big, uh, very big effect. It's highly statistically significant. So then we can do what they do in the Scandinavian study as well. We can adjust for demographics. So we can adjust for differences in education and, and income across moms. Uh, and what we find is a much smaller effect, but still actually pretty sizable and significant. So this is about one point four IQ points, which, you know, is not, maybe you wouldn't look at this and be like, wow, I'm 
gonna change my whole life for that, but that's a that's a that's the kind of effect that gets people's that gets people's attention. Then we can add a third control. We can say, okay, now let's adjust for the mom's IQ. So now let's go beyond just the demographics and put in the control for IQ. And now we see the effect, well, actually in some specifications still significant, it's getting much smaller. It's about a half an IQ point. Okay, but it's still there. And so maybe if you're, if you're a person whose goal is to kind of like spend all of your time investing in every possible IQ point your kid can have, maybe you'd still, be, uh, you'd still be, be compelled here. But then we can take our last step and we can actually adjust for the, what family you're in. So we can actually say, let's compare two kids, same mom, one of them's breastfed and one of them is, uh, is not. Uh, and then you see this number here. It's all the way teeny, you barely see it. It's 0.02. IQ points, okay? So almost, and it's certainly not statistically different from zero. So almost nobody is, do, you, you're not doing things for 0.02 IQ points, okay? That's not an important number. Um, so why is this analysis useful? So I think it tells us sort of two things. First, it tells us like, th- th- there is no effect of breastfeeding on IQ. And this is, this is echoed in other data like this and in other kinds of, of sort of well-controlled studies that we just simply, the best data does not support an effect of breastfeeding on, on IQ. But I think what's important here is it also gives us a sense of why some of these other studies do show us an effect, right? So one argument you could have is, well, look, you have two studies. One says an effect, one says no effect. How do I know which one to believe? This study says there's an effect if you do it in the same way as these other studies. It's only because they are able to do better at adjusting for differences across moms that they are able to get to to zero. So I think this tells us a little bit about why uh, some of these other studies are uh, are flawed in this this particular way. Um, So so I argue in the book that this study is representative of a a bigger literature uh, on this particular question. And and in the end, uh, that there are a bunch of other uh, links between breastfeeding and various outcomes, which sort of you can do the same kind of analysis uh, too. Uh, and so in the end, I put up a sort of updated uh, version of this, uh, of this table, uh, which says that actually, to be clear, there are some benefits of breastfeeding, some things that are definitely supported in the best data. Many of them surround uh, some early life health. So babies who are infants who are breastfed um, seem to have fewer allergic, uh, allergic rashes, fewer gastrointestinal disorders. Um, there are some strong benefits to, to preterm babies um, and maybe some benefits for ear infections. Actually, does seem like there are some long-term benefits for mom in terms of breast cancer reduction. Um, and it is mechanically true that cows uh, produce methane. Um, so those, that's true. But like relative to the sort of picture that you get from the first graph, This is just much more limited. And so when we tell people things like breast is best, that's that's true in the sense that it's it's best, uh, in the sense that it has some benefits. Uh, And so I guess if that's what you mean by best, then it is is best. Um, But I think it's not best in the way that that's said. Like it's best and it's best, the most important thing you could possibly do. And if you don't do it, you have failed as a parent. And I think that this, this picture gives a, a, a different, a more nuanced, perhaps, approach to how we might convince, like, talk to people about the, about the benefits of breastfeeding. It doesn't mean that people shouldn't breastfeed, uh, but I think, and I, I think it really doesn't mean that they shouldn't be helped if they, if they want to, but I think it also means we should be careful about some of the rhetoric we have around the importance of this in, in parenting. 
Um, so the book actually goes through much more than, uh, than, than breastfeeding. So I'd spend time talking about um, co-sleeping and about potty training, about the choice to have a parent stay at home versus, uh, versus work out outside the home. Um, and I think in a lot of these cases, if you look out at the way people talk about parenting in the world, you would be sort of forgiven for thinking that there is a right choice uh, and that you just have to look out and find, like, what's the right uh, what's the right choice? Um, but I think, in, in fact, in almost all of these cases, the data is more um, is more nuanced. So if you think about something like co-sleeping, where I, I started this uh, this discussion, uh, I there are uh, there are some ways to co-sleep that are safer than others, and so there's clearly some messages that should be sent around. If you are going to co-sleep, you should not smoke or drink or sleep with a lot of covers. That there are safer and less safe ways to do this. Uh, it is also the case that even if you do it as safely as possible, there are some risks to co-sleeping, uh, but they are small. Uh, they are small in comparison to, say, the kinds of risks people are taking getting in, getting in cars. Uh, so that means that some people are going to look at that data and say, you know, there's absolutely no way I would take this kind of risk. This isn't something that, I, that I'm going to do. And there are some people who will look and say, yes, I see that, but this is the thing that works for my family, and it's in the range of the kinds of risks that I'm taking, and I'm going to take all the precautions that I can, but ultimately this is the choice that I'm going to make. And I think those are both reasonable choices and not choices that we should be judging people for, uh, for making. Uh, so, uh, so I want to uh, close on a, a sort of final note. So th this book is sort of all about kind of approaching your parenting in a, in a very, um, some people would say high effort uh, way where you think a lot about the, the decisions and sort of are quite careful in making choices and read a lot of data. And, you know, on the one hand, it's relaxed. But on the other hand, you know, I think I'm often talking to an audience of people who are kind of spending a lot of time, like, thinking about all the stuff that they're, that they're doing. And, and, of course, I write partly uh, in that way because I myself am a highly neurotic person. Uh, person who does that all the time. Um, so, uh, so I, I want to end the talk with the, with the way I end the book, um, which is, uh, which is what with basically the best parenting advice, um, that I have ever gotten, which is a story about bees. So when my daughter was, uh, was almost two, we were going on vacation to a location, um, where we had been before and it has a lot of bees uh, and it's also somewhat isolated. And so not like very isolated, not like the jungle, but like, you know, there was, it's like a 10 minute drive from a town. And I had gotten one of these things that you get as a parent in your head where like, I just got like obsessed with the idea that she was going to be stung by a bee and she had never been stung before. And she was going to be allergic. And I just like got it in my head and I couldn't get rid of it. And I was sort of thinking about it. And so we come to our well child visit and I have my usual like, like Google doc list of things to ask the doctor about. And this is on there. And so I like start in with, you know, we're going to this place. It's very isolated. There's a lot of bees. Here are some solutions I've come up with. You know, first we could, could we just get an EpiPen like just in case, or maybe we could just have her tested for this allergy. Like what, you know, what do you think is the right approach that we should take to my important bee situation that I've got here? And, and we had this like really wonderful pediatrician, Dr. Lee, and Dr. Lee just sort of, she would always just like, let me talk. She's like, let me talk. And then I finished. She said, yeah, well, I would just try not to think about that. <laughs> and, and of course, like, 
it was the reason it's such good advice was was actually what she could have said was you know the first time people get stung by a bee actually they don't typically have a terrible reaction so like this you know like if she does and she has any like she could have given me a sort of sciency answer to this but I think she sort of understood in the moment like just don't think about that you know this isn't probably this isn't going to come up if it comes up you 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 know it's not going to be a tragedy you're going to deal with it in the uh, in the moment but you can't approach all of your parenting decisions with this kind of like high intensity that uh, that that you want to do and I think for me that was kind of that's something I, I think about a lot when I'm in the moment uh, of something that actually isn't a super important decision I've somehow gotten myself worked up at it you know like let's just let's just try not I just try not to, to think about try not to think about that uh, so let me stop there Emily Oster is author of Crib Sheet, a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.